Book Nine, Part Two of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume Four by François René de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Teixeira de Matos. Book Nine, Part Two. The Vicomte de Montmorency to the Vicomte de Chateaubriand, Paris, seventeenth August. Although there are no very important dispatches to entrust to your faithful Hyacinthe, I wish nevertheless to send him back, according to your own desire, noble Viscount, and to that which he has expressed to me, on behalf of Madame de Chateaubriand, to see him return to you soon. I will make use of this to send you a few words of a more confidential character. On the profound impression made upon us here, as in London, by the terrible death of the Marquis of Londonderry, and also by the same occasion, on a matter to which you seem to attach a very exaggerated and very exclusive interest. The Council of the King has taken advantage of it, and has fixed for these days, immediately after the closing, which took place this morning, the discussion of the principal directions to be settled, the instructions to be given, and also the persons to be selected. The first question is to know if these will be one or several. You have somewhere, I seem to think, expressed astonishment that we could think of not to put you before him, you know very well that he cannot be on the same line for us. If, after the most mature examination, we did not think it possible to avail ourselves of the good will which you have very frankly shown us in this respect, it would doubtless require, in order to decide us, grave motives which I would communicate to you with the same frankness. The postponement is rather favourable to your desire, in this sense, that it would be most inconvenient, both for you and for us, that you should leave London within the next few weeks, and before the ministerial decision which continues to occupy all the cabinets. This strikes everybody so much that some friend said to me the other day, if Monsieur de Chateaubriand had come at once to Paris, it would have been rather annoying for him to be obliged to leave again for London. We therefore expect to make this important nomination on the return from Edinburgh. The Chevalier Stuart said yesterday that surely the Duke of Wellington would go to the Congress. It is important that we should know this at the earliest possible moment. Monsieur Hyde de Neuville arrived yesterday in good health. I was delighted to see him. I renew to you, noble Viscount, all my inviolable sentiments. Montmorency. This new letter from Monsieur de Montmorency, mingled with some ironical phrases, fully confirmed my impression that he did not want me at the Congress. I gave a dinner on St. Louis' Day, in honour of Louis the Eighteenth and I went to visit Hartwell in remembrance of the King's exile. I was fulfilling a duty rather than enjoying a pleasure. Royal misfortunes are so common nowadays that one feels but little interest in spots that have not been inhabited by genius or virtue. All that I saw in the sad little park at Hartwell was the daughter of Louis XVI. At last I suddenly received from Monsieur de Villeneuve an unexpected note which gave the lie to my previsions and put an end to my uncertainties. 27th August, 1822. My dear Chateaubriand, it has just been decided that, so soon as the proprieties relating to the King's return to London permit you, you will be authorised to come to Paris, thence to proceed to Vienna or Verona, as one of the three plenipotentiaries charged to represent France at the Congress. The two others will be Messieurs de Caramont and de la Ferronnay, which does not prevent Monsieur le Vicomte de Montmorency from leaving the day after to-morrow for Vienna, in order to assist at the conferences which may take place in that city before the Congress. 
he is to return to paris when the sovereigns leave for verona this for yourself alone i am glad that this matter has taken the turn which you desire cordially and entirely yours upon this note i prepared to leave the thunderbolt which incessantly falls at my feet followed me everywhere with lord londonderry died old england which had struggled on till then in the midst of growing innovations supervened mr canning self-love carried him so far as to talk the language of the propagandist from his place in parliament after him appeared the duke of wellington a conservative who came to pull down when the sentence of society is pronounced the hand which was to build knows only how to demolish lord grey o'connell all those labourers at ruins were working successively at the overthrow of the old institutions parliamentary reform irish emancipation all things excellent in themselves became thanks to the insalubrity of the time causes of destruction fear increased the evils if men had not been so greatly terrified at the threats they would have been able to resist with a certain success what need had england to consent to our last troubles shut up in her island and in her national enmities she was sheltered what need had the cabinet of st james to dread the separation of ireland ireland is only england's longboat cut the painter and the longboat separated from the big ship will go to wreck amid the waves lord liverpool himself had sad forebodings i dined with him one day after dinner we talked at a window overlooking the thames down the river we saw a portion of the city of which the fog and smoke enlarged the bulk i praised to my host the solidity of the english monarchy kept in balance by the even swing of liberty and power the venerable peer raising and stretching out his arm pointed to the city and said what sense of solidity can there be with these enormous towns a serious insurrection in london and all is lost it seems to me as though i were finishing a journey in england like that which i made in earlier days on the ruins of athens of jerusalem of memphis and carthage summoning to my presence the centuries of albion passing from renown to renown seeing them swallowed up by turns i feel a sort of painful giddiness what has become of those brilliant and riotous days in which lived shakespeare and milton henry the eighth and elizabeth cromwell and william pitt and burke all that is finished superiorities and mediocrities hatreds and loves bliss and wretchedness oppressors and oppressed executioners and victims kings and people all sleep in the same silence and the same dust but what nullities we are if it is thus with the most living part of the human kind with the genius which lingers like a shadow of olden time in the present generation but which no longer lives in itself and which does not know that it ever existed how many times has england in the space of a few hundred years been destroyed through how many revolutions has she not passed to come to the brink of a greater a more deep-laid revolution which will envelop posterity i have seen those famous british parliaments in all their mightiness what will become of them i have seen england in her ancient manners and in her ancient prosperity everywhere the little lonely church with its steeple grey's country churchyard everywhere narrow and gravelled roads valleys filled with cows heaths spotted with sheep parks country-houses towns 
few large forests, few birds, the sea breeze. It was not those plains of Andalusia, where I found the old Christians and the young loves, among the voluptuous remains of the palace of the Moors, in the midst of the aloes and palm-trees. Quid dignum memorare tuis, Hispania, terris vox humana valet. There was not that Roman Campania, whose irresistible charm is incessantly calling after me. Those waves and that sun were not the waves and the sun that bathe and light the promontory on which Plato taught his disciples. At Sunium, where I heard the crickets sing, in vain asking Minerva for the hearth of the priests of her temple. But after all, such as she was, this England, surrounded by her ships, covered with her herds, and professing the cult of her great men, was charming and redoubtable. Today her valleys are darkened by the smoke of forges and workshops, her roads change into iron ways, and along those roads, in lieu of Milton and Shakespeare, move wandering boilers. Already the nurseries of knowledge, Oxford and Cambridge, are assuming a deserted aspect. Their colleges and their Gothic chapels, half abandoned, distress the eye. In their cloisters, near the sepulchral stones of the Middle Ages, lie forgotten the marble annals of the ancient peoples of Greece, ruins guarding ruins. By these monuments, around which the void was beginning to form, I left that part of my spring days which I had refound. I parted a second time with my youth on the same shore where I had abandoned it formerly. Charlotte had suddenly reappeared like that luminary, the delight of the shades, which, delayed by the flight of the months, should rise in the middle of the night. If you are not too weary, read in these memoirs of the effect which the sudden vision of that woman produced upon me in 1822. When she had distinguished me before, I did not know those other English women who came to flock round me in my hour of power and renown. Their homage was as fickle as my fortune. Today, after sixteen new years have passed away since my embassy in London, after so many new destructions, my eyes are carried back to the daughter of the land of Desdemona and Juliet. She counts now in my memory only from the day on which her unexpected presence rekindled the torch of my recollections. A new Epimenides awakened after a long sleep. I fix my gaze upon a beacon so much the brighter, in that the others are extinguished along the shore. One alone excepted will shine long after me. I did not finish telling all that concerned Charlotte in the preceding pages of these memoirs. She came with a part of her family to see me in France, when I was a minister in 1823. Through one of those inexplicable miseries of mankind, preoccupied as I was with a war on which depended the fate of the French monarchy, something must no doubt have been lacking in my voice, for Charlotte, returning to England, left me a letter in which she shows herself hurt at the coldness of my reception. I have dared neither to write to her, nor to send back to her some literary fragments which she had restored to me, and which I had promised to return to her augmented. If it were true that she had had a genuine reason to complain, I would fling into the fire all that I have told of my first sojourn across the sea. Often the thought has come to me to go to solve my doubts. But could I return to England, I, who am weak enough not to dare to visit the paternal rock on which I have marked out my tomb? I am afraid nowadays of my sensations. Time, removing my young years, has made me like those soldiers whose limbs have been left on the battlefield. My blood, having a less long road to travel, rushes into my heart with so rapid a flow that the old organ of my joys and sorrows throbs as though ready to burst. The wish to burn all that concerned Charlotte, although she is treated with religious respect, 
is mingled in my mind with the longing to destroy these memoirs. If they still belong to me, or if I could buy them back, I should succumb to the temptation. I have so great a distaste for everything, so great a contempt for the present and for the immediate future, so firm a conviction that men, henceforth, taken altogether as a public, and that for several centuries, will be pitiable, that I blush to consume my last moments in the relating of past things, in the depicting of a finished world, of which the language and the name will no more be understood. Man is as much deceived by the success of his wishes as by their disappointment. I had desired, contrary to my natural instinct, to go to the Congress. Taking advantage of a prejudice of Monsieur de Villel's, I had induced him to force Monsieur de Montmorency's hand. Well, my real inclination was not for that which I had obtained. I should doubtless have felt some spite if I had been compelled to remain in England. But soon the idea of going to see Lady Sutton, of making a journey through the three kingdoms, would have mastered the impulse of a superadded ambition which is not inherent in my nature. God ordained differently, and I left for Verona. Thence the change in my life. Thence my ministry, the Spanish war, my triumph, my fall, soon followed by that of the monarchy. One of the two handsome children on whose behalf Charlotte had asked me to interest myself in 1822 has just been to see me in Paris. He is now Captain Sutton, he is married to a charming young wife, and he has told me that his mother has been very ill, and has lately spent a winter in London. I embarked at Dover on the 8th of September, 1822, at the same port from which, twenty-two years earlier, Monsieur Lassagne of Neuchâtel had set sail. Between that first departure to the moment of writing, thirty-nine years have elapsed. When a man looks upon or listens to his past life, he seems to perceive on a deserted sea the track of a vessel that has disappeared. He seems to hear the tolling of a bell, of which the old tower is not in sight. Here, in the order of dates, comes a place of the Congress de Veron, which I have published in two volumes apart. Should any one by chance feel a wish to read it, he can find it everywhere. My Spanish War, the great political event of my life, was a gigantic undertaking. The legitimacy was for the first time about to burn powder under the white flag, to fire its first gunshot after those gunshots of the Empire, which will be audible to the utmost posterity. To bestride Spain with one step, to succeed on the same soil where formerly a conqueror's arms had encountered reverses, to do in six months what he was unable to do in seven years. Who could have laid claim to that prodigy? That is, however, what I did. But by how many curses has not my head been smitten at the gaming-table, at which the restoration had seated me? I had before me a France hostile to the Bourbons, and two great foreign princes, Prince von Metternich and Mr. Canning. Not a day passed, but I received letters prophesying a catastrophe, for the war with Spain was not at all popular, either in France or in Europe. Indeed, some time after my successes in the peninsula, my fall was not long in arriving. In our ardour, after the receipt of the telegraphic dispatch announcing the deliverance of the King of Spain, we ministers hastened to the palace. There I had a presentiment of my fall. I received a bucketful of cold water over my ears, which brought me back to my habitual humility. The King and Monsieur did not notice us. Madame la Duchesse d'Angoulême, distracted by her husband's triumph, had eyes for nobody. That immortal victim wrote a letter on Ferdinand's deliverance, ending in this exclamation, sublime in the mouth of a daughter of Louis XVI. So it is proved that one can save an unfortunate king. On the Sunday I returned, before the meeting of the council, 
to pay my court to the royal family. The august princess spoke an obliging sentence to each of my colleagues. To me she did not address a word. I did not, certainly, deserve such an honour. The silence of the orphan of the temple can never be ungrateful. Heaven has a right to the worship of the earth, and owes nothing to any one. I then lingered on till Whitsuntide. Still my friends were not without anxiety. They often said to me, You will be dismissed to-morrow. This minute, if they like, I used to reply. On Whitsunday, the 6th of June, 1824, I had found my way to the first drawing-rooms of Monsieur, and Usher came to tell me that I was being asked for. It was Iersante, my secretary. He told me when he saw me that I was no longer in office. I opened the packet which he handed me. I found in it this note from Monsieur de Villel. Monsieur le Vicomte, in obedience to the King's orders, I am at once communicating to Your Excellency a decree which His Majesty has just issued. The Sieur Comte de Villel, President of our Council of Ministers, is charged ad interim with the business of the Foreign Office, Vice the Sieur Vicomte de Chateaubriand. This decree was written in the hand of Monsieur de Rainville, who is good enough still to be embarrassed at it in my presence. Why, gracious heaven, do I know Monsieur de Rainville? Have I ever given him a thought? I meet him pretty often. Has he ever perceived that I knew that the decree by which I was struck off the list of ministers was written in his hand? And yet, what had I done? Where did my intrigues or my ambition lie? Had I desired Monsieur de Villel's place, when going alone and in secret to walk in the depths of the Bois de Boulogne? It was that strange life that ruined me. I had the simplicity to remain as heaven had made me, and because I longed for nothing, they thought that I wanted everything. Today I can very well imagine that my life apart was a great mistake. What? You do not want to be anything? Go away! We do not choose that a man should despise what we worship, nor that he should think himself entitled to insult the mediocrity of our life. The difficulties of wealth and the disadvantages of poverty followed me to my lodging in the Rue de l'Université. On the day of my dismissal I had invitations sent out for a huge dinner-party at the Foreign Office. I had to send excuses to my guests and to pack three great courses, prepared for forty persons, into my little kitchen for two people. Montmirel and his assistants set to work, and cramming saucepans, frying-pans, and stew-pans into every corner, he put his warmed-up masterpiece under shelter. An old friend came to share the maroon sailor's first meal. The town and the court came hastening up, for there was but one voice on the outrageousness of my dismissal, after the service which I had just rendered. They were convinced that my disgrace would not last long. They gave themselves airs of independence in consoling a misfortune of a few days, at the end of which they would profitably remind the unlucky man returned to power that they had not abandoned him. They were mistaken. They wasted their courage. They had reckoned on my lack of spirit, on my whining, on my toad-eating ambition, on my eagerness to plead guilty, to wait standing on those who had driven me out. They ill knew me. I retired without even claiming the salary which was due to me, without receiving a favour or a groat from the court. I closed my door to whosoever had betrayed me, I refused the condoling crowd, and I took up arms. And then all dispersed. Universal condemnation burst forth, and my game, which had at first seemed fine to the drawing-rooms and antechambers, appeared horrible. Should I not have done better, after my discharge, to be silent? Had not the brutality of the proceeding brought back the public to me? Monsieur de Villel has repeatedly said that the letter of dismissal was delayed. By this accident it had the misfortune to be handed to me only at the palace. Perhaps this was so. 
but when we play we must calculate the chances of the game we must above all not write to a friend of any worth a letter which we should be ashamed to address to a guilty footman whom we would put out of doors without ceremony or remorse the irritation of the villel party against myself was the greater inasmuch as they wished to appropriate my work to themselves and as i had displayed ability in matters of which i had been supposed to know nothing no doubt with silence and moderation as they said i should have been lauded by the race who live in perpetual adoration of the portfolio by doing penance for my innocence i should have prepared my return to the council it would have been more in the common course of things but that was taking me for the man i am not that was suspecting me of a desire to recapture the helm of the state the wish to make my way a desire and a wish which would not occur to me in a hundred thousand years the idea which i had of representative government led me to enter the opposition the systematic opposition seems to me the only one suited to that form of government the opposition known as conscientious is impotent conscience can decide a moral fact it is no judge of an intellectual fact it is absolutely necessary to place oneself under a leader and a praise of good laws and bad if this be not so then your deputy takes his stupidity for his conscience and votes accordingly the so-called conscientious opposition consists in fluctuating between the parties in champing the bit in even voting should the case require for the ministry in appearing magnanimous although fretting an opposition of mutinous imbecilities among the soldiers of ambitious capitulations among the chiefs so long as england was sane she never had other than a systematic opposition a man came in and went out with his friends on leaving office he took his place on the bench of the assailants as he was considered to have resigned because he did not wish to accept a system that system being retained by the crown must necessarily be combated now as men represent only principles the systematic opposition aimed only at carrying principles when it attacked men my form made a great noise those who displayed the most satisfaction censured its form i have since learned that m de villele hesitated m de corbiere decided the question if he enters the council by one door he is reported to have said i go out by the other i was allowed to go out it was quite simple that they should prefer m de corbiere to me i bear him no ill-will i was troubling him he had me turned out he did well the day after my dismissal and the following days the journal des débats contained these words which do such honour to the monsieur bertin this is the second time that m de chateaubriand stands the test of a solemn dismissal he was dismissed as a minister of state in eighteen sixteen for having attacked in his immortal work on the monarchie selon la charte the famous decree of the fifth of september pronouncing the dissolution of the chambre introuvable of eighteen fifteen messieurs de villel and corbiere were then simple deputies leaders of the royalist opposition and it was for taking up their defence that m de chateaubriand became the victim of the ministerial anger now in eighteen twenty four monsieur de chateaubriand is again dismissed and it is messieurs de villel and corbiere since become ministers who sacrifice him singular thing in eighteen sixteen he was punished for speaking in eighteen twenty four they punish him for holding his tongue his crime is that he kept silence in the discussion on the law for reducing the rate of interest not every disgrace is a misfortune public opinion the supreme judge will tell us in which class to place m de chateaubriand it will tell us also to whom this day's decree shall have proved the more fatal to the victor or the vanquished who would have said at the commencement of the session 
that we should thus spoil the results of the Spanish enterprise. What did we want this year? Nothing except the septennial act, but the complete act, and the budget. The affairs of Spain, of the East, of the Americas, conducted as they were prudently and silently, would have been cleared up. The fairest future lay before us. They wanted to gather green fruit, it did not fall, and they imagined that they could remedy precipitation by violence. Anger and envy are evil counsellors. It is not by means of the passions and by proceeding with jerks and starts that states are governed. P.S. The Septennial Act has been passed this evening in the Chamber of Deputies. One may say that Monsieur de Chateaubriand's doctrines triumph after he has left the Ministry. This Act, which he had long ago conceived as the complement of our institutions, will, together with the Spanish War, forever mark his passing in public life. It is very keenly regretted that Monsieur de Corbière should, on Saturday, have snatched the opportunity of speaking from him who was then his illustrious colleague. The Chamber of Peers would at least have heard the swan song. As for ourselves, it is with the liveliest regret that we enter again upon a career of combats, which we hope that we had, thanks to the union of the Royalists, abandoned for ever. But honour, political loyalty, the good of France, do not permit us to hesitate as to the course which we should take. The signal for the reaction was thus given. Monsieur de Villel was not too much alarmed by it at first. He did not know the strength of men's opinions. Many years were necessary to overthrow him, but he fell at last. I received from the President of the Council a letter which settled everything, and which proved, to my great simplicity, that I had taken nothing of that which makes a man respected and respectable. Paris, 16th June, 1824. Monsieur le Vicomte, I have hastened to lay before His Majesty the order by which you are granted a full and entire discharge for the sums which you have received from the Royal Treasury for secret expenses during the whole time of your ministry. The King has approved of all the provisions of this order, which I have the honour to forward you herewith in the original. Accept, Monsieur le Vicomte, etc. My friends and I expedited a prompt correspondence. The Vicomte de Chateaubriand to the Marquis de Talaru. Paris, 9th June, 1824. I am no longer minister, my dear friend. They contend that you are. When I obtained the Madrid embassy for you, I said to several persons who still remember it, I have appointed my successor. I am anxious to have been a prophet. Monsieur de Villel is holding the portfolio ad interim. Chateaubriand. The Vicomte de Chateaubriand to the Comte de Rineval. Paris, 16th June, 1824. I have finished, monsieur. I hope that you have still plenty before you. I have endeavoured that you should have no reason to complain of me. It is possible that I may retire to Neuchâtel in Switzerland. Should that happen, ask His Prussian Majesty beforehand for his protection and favours for me. Present my respects to Count Bernstorff, my kind regards to Monsieur Ancien, and my compliments to all your secretaries. You, monsieur, I beg to believe in my devotion and in my most sincere attachment. Chateaubriand. The Vicomte de Chateaubriand to the Marquis de Carmont. Paris, 22nd June, 1824. I have received, Monsieur le Marquis, your letters of the 11th of this month. Others than I will tell you the road which you will henceforth have to follow. If it is conformable to what you have heard, it will carry you far. It is probable that my dismissal will give Monsieur de Metternich great pleasure for a fortnight or so. 
Receive, Monsieur le Marquis, my adieus and the renewed assurance of my devotion and of my high regard, Chateaubriand. The Vicomte de Chateaubriand to the Baron Hyde de Neuville. Paris, 22nd June, 1824. You will doubtless have heard of my dismissal. It remains for me only to tell you how happy I have been to have with you the relations that have now been broken off. Continue, monsieur, an old friend, to render services to your country, but do not reckon too much on gratitude, nor believe that your successes will be a reason for maintaining you in the post where you are doing yourself so much honour. I wish you, monsieur, all the happiness that you deserve, and I embrace you. P.S. I have this minute received your letter of the 5th of this month, in which you inform me of Monsieur de Meronas' arrival. I thank you for your good friendship. Be sure that I have looked for nothing else in your letters. Chateaubriand. The Vicomte de Chateaubriand to the Comte de Serres. Paris, 23rd June, 1824. My dismissal, Monsieur le Comte, will have proved to you my inability to serve you. It but remains for me to express the wish to see you where your talents call you. I am retiring, happy to have contributed towards restoring to France her military and political independence, and to have introduced septenniality into her electoral system. It is not what I wanted it to be. The change of age was a necessary consequence of it. But at last the principle is laid down. Time will do the rest. If, however, it do not undo it. I venture to flatter myself, Monsieur le Comte, that you have had no cause to complain of our relations and I shall always congratulate myself on having met, in business, a man of your merit. Receive with my adieus, etc. Chateaubriand The Vicomte de Chateaubriand to the Comte de la Ferronnée, Paris, 24th June, 1824 Should you by chance still be in St. Petersburg, Monsieur le Comte, I will not end our correspondence without telling you of all the esteem and all the friendship with which you have inspired me. Keep well, be happier than I, and believe that you will find me again in any circumstance of life. I am writing a line to the Emperor, Chateaubriand. The reply to this farewell reached me in the early days of August. Monsieur de la Ferronnay had accepted the functions of ambassador under my ministry. Later, I, in my turn, became ambassador under the ministry of Monsieur de la Ferronnay. Neither of us thought himself to be rising or descending. Fellow countrymen and friends, we mutually did each other justice. Monsieur de la Ferronnay endured the harshest trials without complaining. He remained loyal to his sufferings and to his noble poverty. After my fall, he acted on my behalf at St. Petersburg, as I would have acted on his. An honest man is always sure of being understood by an honest man. I am happy to produce this touching evidence of the courage, the loyalty and the elevation of soul of Monsieur de la Ferronnay. At the moment when I received this note, it was a very superior compensation to me for the capricious and hackneyed favours of fortune. It is only here for the first time that I think it right to violate the secrecy which friendship recommended to me. The Comte de la Ferronnay to the Vicomte de Chateaubriand, St. Petersburg, 24th July, 1824. The Russian mail of the day before yesterday brought me your little letter of the 16th. It will be for me one of the most precious of all those which I have had the happiness to receive from you. I am keeping it as a title in which I glory, and I have the firm hope and the intimate conviction that soon I shall be able to present it to you in less melancholy circumstances. I shall imitate, Monsieur le Vicomte, the example which you set me, and I shall permit myself no reflection upon an event which has, in so abrupt and unexpected a manner, 
broken off the relations which the service established between you and myself the very nature of those relations the confidence with which you honoured me lastly considerations of a much graver kind because they are not exclusively personal will explain to you sufficiently the motives and all the extent of my regrets what has just occurred still remains entirely inexplicable to me i am absolutely ignorant of the reasons but i see the effects they were so easy so natural to foresee that i am astonished that people were so little afraid to set them at naught i am too well acquainted however with the nobility of the sentiments which animate you and with the purity of your patriotism not to be very sure that you will approve of the conduct which i have thought right to follow in this circumstance it was required of me by my duty by my love for my country and even by the interest of your glory and you are too good a frenchman to accept in the position in which you find yourself the protection and the support of foreigners you have won for ever the confidence and esteem of europe but it is france whom you serve and you belong to her alone she may be unjust but neither you nor your real friends will ever suffer your cause to be made less pure or less fine by entrusting its defence to foreign voices i have therefore silenced every kind of private feeling or consideration in the presence of the general interest i have forestalled measures the first effect of which would have been to arouse dangerous divisions among us and to violate the dignity of the throne this is the last service which i have rendered here before my departure you alone monsieur le vicomte shall know of it the confidence was due to you and i know the nobility of your character too well not to feel very sure that you will keep my secret and that you will consider my conduct in this circumstance consonant with the sentiments which you have the right to exact from those whom you honour with your friendship and your esteem adieu monsieur le vicomte if the relations which i have had the good fortune to have with you have been able to give you a correct idea of my character you must know that it is not changes of position that can alter my sentiments nor will you ever doubt the attachment and devotion of one who in the actual circumstances considers himself the most fortunate of men to be placed by public opinion among the number of your friends la Ferronnay. messieurs de fontenay and de pancaré are keenly alive to the value of the remembrance in which you are good enough to bear them witnesses like myself of the increase of consideration which france had gained since your entrance into the ministry it is quite simple that they should share my sentiments and my regrets i began the contest of my new opposition immediately after my fall but it was interrupted by the death of louis the eighteenth and was not actively resumed until after the coronation of charles x in the month of july i joined madame de chateaubriand at neuchatel she had gone there to wait for me and had hired a cottage beside the lake the chain of the alps unfolded itself north and south to a great distance before us we had our backs to the jura whose flanks black with pine trees rose perpendicularly over our heads the lake was deserted a wooden gallery served me as an exercise ground i thought of milord Maréchal. when i climbed to the top of the jura i saw the lake of bienne to whose breezes and waters jean-jacques rousseau owes one of his happiest inspirations madame de chateaubriand went to visit fribourg and a country house which they had described to us as charming and which she found icy cold although it was called the petite provence a lean black cat half wild which caught little fish by dipping its paw into a large pail filled with water from the lake 
was my only distraction. A quiet old woman who was always knitting prepared our banquet in an Huguenot, had not lost the habit of the collation of the country mouse. Neuchâtel had had its good days. It had belonged to the Duchesse de Longueville. Jean-Jacques Rousseau had walked in an Armenian dress on its mountains, and Madame de Charrière, so daintily observed by Monsieur de Saint-Beuve, had described its society in the Lettre Neuchâteloise. But Julien, Mademoiselle de la Prise, Henri Meyer, were no longer there. I saw only poor Fauche-Borel of the old emigration. He threw himself soon after from his window. The kept gardens of Monsieur de Portales charmed me no more than did an English rockery raised by man's hands in a neighbouring vineyard facing the Jura. Berthier, last prince of Neuchâtel, in the name of Bonaparte, was forgotten, in spite of his little simplon of the Val de Travers, and although he smashed his skull in the same way as Fauchborel. The king's illness called me back to Paris. The king died on the 16th of September, scarcely four months after my dismissal. My pamphlet, entitled Le Roi et Mort, Vive le Roi, in which I hailed the new sovereign, performed for Charles X, what my pamphlet de Bonaparte et des Bourbons had performed for Louis the Eighteenth. I went to fetch Madame de Chateaubriand and Neuchâtel, and we came to Paris to live in the Rue du Regard. Charles X made his reign popular at its commencement by abolishing the censorship. The coronation took place in the spring of 1825. Already the bees were beginning to hum, the birds to warble, and the lambs to gamble on the green. Among my papers I find the following pages written at Rheims. Rheims, 26th May, 1825. The king arrives the day after tomorrow. He will be crowned on Sunday the 29th. I shall see him place on his head a crown of which no one thought in 1814, when I raised my voice. I have contributed to opening the doors of France to him. I have given him defenders by bringing the Spanish war to a satisfactory issue. I have caused the charter to be adopted, and I have succeeded in finding an army. The only two things with which the king can reign at home and abroad. What part is reserved for me at the coronation? That of an outlaw. I come as one of the crowd to receive a ribbon, distributed broadcast, which I do not even hold from Charles X. The people whom I have served and placed turn their backs on me. The king will hold my hands in his. He will see me at his feet when I take my oath, without being moved, even as he sees me without interest recommencing my poverty. Does that make a difference to me? No. Freed from the obligation of going to the Tuileries, I am compensated for everything by independence. I am writing this page of my memoirs in the room in which I am forgotten amid all the noise. I have this morning visited Saint-Rémy and the cathedral, decorated with stained paper. I shall not have had a clear idea of this latter edifice, except from the decorations of Schiller's Joan of Arc, as played before me in Berlin. Operatic machinery has shown me, on the banks of the Spree, what operatic machinery hides from me, on the banks of the Vell. For the rest, I have taken my diversion among the old dynasties, from Clovis, with his Franks, and his pigeon descending from heaven, to Charles VII, with Joan of Arc. Je suis venu de mon pays, pas plus qu'une botte, avec me, avec me, avec ma marmotte. A soupice, sir, if you please. That is what a little Savoyard, just arrived at Rheims, sang to me, returning from my walk. And what have you come here for? I asked him. I have come to the coronation, sir. With your marmot? Yes, sir, with a me, with a me, with a my marmot, he replied, dancing and turning. 
Well, that's like me, my boy. That was not correct. I had come to the coronation without a marmotte, and a marmotte is a great resource. I had nothing in my box but some old dream or other, which no passer-by would have paid a sous-piece to see climb up a stick. Louis the Seventeenth and Louis the Eighteenth were not crowned. Charles X's coronation comes immediately after Louis says. Charles X was present at his brother's coronation. He represented the Duke of Normandy, William the Conqueror. Under what happy auspices did not Louis says ascend the throne? How popular was he on succeeding Louis XV? And yet, what did he come to? The present coronation will be not a coronation, but the representation of a coronation. We shall see Marshal Moncy, an actor in the coronation of Napoleon, that marshal who formerly celebrated in his army the death of the tyrant Louis XVI. We shall now see brandishing the royal sword at Rheims in the quality of Count of Flanders or Duke of Aquitaine. Who could be taken in by that parade? I would have wished no pomp to-day, the king on horseback, the church bare, adorned only with its old vaults and its old tombs, the two chambers present, the oath of fidelity to the charter pronounced aloud on the Gospels. There you would have the renewal of the monarchy. They might have recommenced it with liberty and religion. Unfortunately, they had little love for liberty, if still they had, at least, had the taste for glory. Ah, que dirons là-bas, sur les tombes poudreuses, de tant de vaillants rois, les ombres généreuses. Que dirons Faramon, Claudion et Clovis, nos pépins, nos martels, nos chars, nos lui qui, de la propre sang, a tous péril de guerre, en acquise à le fils une si belle terre. Lastly, has not the new coronation, to which the Pope came to anoint a man as great as the chief of the second dynasty, in changing the heads, destroyed the effect of the ancient ceremony of our history? The people has been led to believe that a pious rite dedicated no one to the throne, or rendered indifferent the choice of the forehead to which the holy oil was applied. The supernumeraries of Notre-Dame de Paris, figuring likewise in the Cathedral of Rheims, will be nothing more than the necessary characters in a scene that has become vulgar. The advantage will remain with Napoleon, who sends his walking gentleman to Charles X. The figure of the Emperor dominates everything henceforward. It stands at the bottom of events and ideas. The pages of these lower days to which we have come shrivel up under the glance of his eagles. Rem, Saturday eve of the coronation i have seen the king's entry i have seen past the gilt coaches of the monarch who but lately had not a horse to ride i have seen those carriages roll by filled with courtiers who were not able to defend their master this herd went to the church to sing the te deum and i went to look at a roman ruin and to walk by myself in a wood of elm trees called the wood of love i heard from afar the jubilation of the bells I contemplated the towers of the cathedral, secular witnesses of that ceremony, which is always the same and yet so different through history, the times, ideas, manners, usages, and customs. The monarchy perished, and the cathedral was for some years turned into a stable. Does Charles X, who sees it again today, remember that he saw Louis XVI anointed in the same place where he is to be anointed in his turn? Will he believe that a coronation yields protection against misfortune? There is no longer a hand virtuous enough to heal the king's evil, no longer a sacred file salutary enough to render kings inviolable. I hurriedly wrote what has just been read on the half-blank pages of a pamphlet entitled Le Sac, Parbanage de Rheims Avocat, and on a printed letter of the Grand Referendary, 
Monsieur de Semonville, saying, The Grand Referendary has the honour to inform his lordship, Monsieur le Vicomte de Chateaubriand, that places in the chancel of Rem Cathedral are intended and reserved for those of Monsieur the Peers, who wish to be present tomorrow at His Majesty's consecration and coronation, at the ceremony of the reception of the Chief and Sovereign Grand Master of the Orders of the Holy Ghost, and of St. Michael, and of the reception of Monsieur the Knights and Commanders. Charles X, nevertheless, had intended to conciliate me. The Archbishop of Paris spoke to him at Rheim of the men in the opposition. The King said, Those who will have nothing to do with me, I leave alone. The Archbishop rejoined, But, sire, Monsieur de Chateaubriand, owe oh, him I regret. The Archbishop asked the King if he might tell me so. The King hesitated, took two or three turns in the room, and replied, Well, yes, tell him. And the Archbishop forgot to speak to me about it. At the ceremony of the Knights of the Orders, I was kneeling at the King's feet, at the moment when Monsieur de Villel was taking his oath. I exchanged two or three words of politeness with my companion in knighthood, with regard to a feather that had come loose from my hat. We left the sovereign's knees, and all was done. The King, finding a difficulty in removing his gloves to take my hands in his, had said to me, laughing, A gloved cat catches no mice. It was thought that he had spoken to me at length, and the rumour was spread of my return to favour. It is probable that Charles X, thinking that the Archbishop had told me of his good will towards me, expected a word of thanks from me, and was offended at my silence. Thus have I assisted at the last coronation of the successors of Clovis. I had occasioned it by the pages in which I had asked for the coronation, and depicted it in my pamphlet, Le Roi Mort, Vive le Roi. Not that I had the least faith in the ceremony, but as everything was lacking to the legitimacy, it was necessary to sustain it to make use of everything for better or for worse. I recall Adalberon's definition. The coronation of a king of France is a public interest, not a private matter. I quoted the admirable prayer set apart for the coronation. O God, who by thy virtues counsel thy peoples, give to this thy servant the spirit of thy wisdom. Let to all men born be in these days equity and justice, to friends succour, to enemies hindrance, to the afflicted consolation, to the lofty correction, to the rich instruction, to the needy pity, to pilgrims hospitality, to poor subjects peace and safety in the motherland. Let him learn to command himself, moderately to govern each one according to his state, so that, O Lord, he may give to all the people an example of life pleasing to thee. Before reproducing in my pamphlet Le Roi et Mort, Vive le Roi, this prayer, preserved by Dutier, I had exclaimed, Let us humbly beseech Charles X to imitate his ancestors. Thirty-two sovereigns of the Third Dynasty have received the royal unction. All my duties being fulfilled, I left Rome, and was able to say, like Joan of Arc, My mission is ended. End of Book 9, Part 2